Romans chapter 4. While you do that, I'll mention that, Lord willing, later this evening, we're going to take up our series of four sermons looking at the perfections of Scripture. And this evening, we come to the doctrine of the clarity of Scripture. What does it mean that the Bible is clear? What does it not mean when we say that the Bible is clear? And what does that mean for your life? But this morning, we are returning to our series, working through the doctrines of the Bible as they are summarized in what we call the Heidelberg Catechism, a document written in Heidelberg in Europe in 1563. And this has stood for hundreds and hundreds of years as a way of uniting Protestant Christians in the Reformed tradition concerning what we believe Scripture teaches. So the Catechism, if you're not familiar with it, in time, if you attend here, you'll become familiar with it, which is a good thing. It doesn't stand above the Bible, but beneath the Bible as an instrument for helping us understand the Bible, of taking ideas and bringing them all together. Now, this morning, we come to the beginning of the section on the sacraments. And so we're going to be dealing over the next seven sermons in the Heidelberg series with questions like, what are sacraments? And which sacraments do we acknowledge as biblical? And how do you use the sacraments in a way that is beneficial throughout your life? Not just at one point in your life, some people relate to baptism that way, as if it was just back then it had value, but how do you use the sacraments in a way that continues to provide benefit to you? Now, our main passage this morning is one wherein the Apostle Paul is speaking about the nature of salvation. He's laying out on what basis people can be acceptable before God. But then in the middle of his argument, he makes what seems like an aside as he starts to talk about a sacrament that Abraham received. And that's because he wants to make very clear how the sacraments relate to salvation. In the context that he was dealing with, there were people who were saying that unless Christians were circumcised, they were not going to be saved. It didn't matter whether they had had faith. Without circumcision, they would not be saved. And here Paul is going to explain how sacraments fit into our beliefs about salvation. And so look with me, beginning at verse 1, we'll read through verse 12. Here's the word of the Lord. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him. As righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. And whose sins are covered, blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, 
so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Let's ask the Lord to bless our consideration. Our Heavenly Father, we pray this morning that through your word and through your servant, you would please speak, that you would grant us true understanding of these important gifts that you have given to us, the sacraments, that you would please excite our hearts with fresh appreciation, help us to know how and also to apply ourselves in using the sacraments in the right way. In everything we pray for your glory, for in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now the purpose of working our way through these core doctrines on something like a five-year rotation is both to lay a foundation for the youth who are among us and to establish those who have joined us, maybe not from a Christian background at all, later in life, and then to refresh all of us in what is truly fundamental, what is truly core to the Christian faith, both so that you would be able to disciple others and proclaim these things to others, but also that you would delight in the truth that God has revealed. Now, in our passage, we come upon one of the most essential, one of the most precious things revealed in Scripture. Beyond the fact that God has revealed himself, the Scripture declares that there are two ways by which human beings can relate to God in covenant. Every human being relates to God according to one or the other of these. And so you have to ask yourself, which way is the way by which I relate to God? On the one hand, Paul lays out, there's the way of relating to God on the basis of our own performance of duty, of moral works. When Paul talks about works, he's talking about everything that you ought to do, everything commanded of you. And there are many who seek to establish their righteousness before God on that basis, to receive a declaration of justification that you are righteous on that ground. Even the people who don't think about the fact that they are doing that are doing that if their faith is not in Jesus Christ. Because the way things are set up, you are a moral being. You have a conscience. You will give an account. Not to just some person, but to God who is infinitely holy. And so that's one way. The other way, of course, as Paul lays it out, is a salvation, a being delivered from the consequences of sin into everlasting life on the basis of grace alone through faith in a mediator. God providing for you someone who stands between. And that is Jesus Christ. Being truly God and truly human, he can fulfill everything necessary for your salvation and has suffered all. Now you see these contrasting principles in verses 4 and 5. Listen carefully where it says, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. If you think that God is going to save you because of some good thing you did, and I speak, I trust not to most of you, but who knows who in our midst may think this way. If you think God will save you because of something you did, then you are essentially saying that God is in your debt. On the other hand, there's a different principle here. Verse 5 And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, or in the place of righteousness. Let those words just sink in and hit the bottom, 
the one who does not work. Of course, believers work. We do good. We're called to do good. But relative to our desire to be accepted, we do not work. Relative to our desire to be accepted, we simply believe that God is so generous that he puts out his hand, and in his hand is Christ, and he says, by faith, take it. And anyone who wishes to barter on that or say, you know, let me split the bill with you, will go to hell. That is the description of salvation given in the Bible. Two contrasting principles that cannot be mixed up. Now, the path that Abraham took is very clear here. Where it says in verse 9, faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. It says counted, or in the place of having his own righteousness, he had a righteousness through faith. That's the path that Abraham took. He's justified apart from circumcision. And Paul makes that emphatic in verse 10 when he says, Abraham wasn't even circumcised until after he was already justified in God's sight. So clearly that had nothing to do with how he got saved. And yet there were these people who were coming to the church that Paul is writing to and telling them, whatever you have done or believed, if you don't do this, you're not going to be saved because they were looking upon the ritual as if it was meritorious in some way or as if it worked above faith as the instrument for salvation. That raises a question, though. Why did God give Abraham this sign, which from our perspective in the 21st century might seem strange to us? Why did he give him this ordinance, and not only him, but his offspring after him? For generations after generations after generation, all the way until the coming of Christ, all of the male offspring of Abraham were to receive this sign. The answer we're going to see is that it was given as a sacrament, as something that God uses to direct and to nourish and to confirm the faith of his people. And when God does that, he sets his people into a different boundary marker within the visible world, and he distinguishes for himself a covenant people. This is not just something that happened back then, of course. We have sacraments under the new covenant as well, and therefore the Lord is calling you to recognize and to use the sacraments rightly. And he's calling especially you elders to guard the sacraments rightly, to ensure that the members and the visitors use them in the way that they were designed to be used. Now, as we look at this doctrine this morning, we're going to examine it under three main headings. The first of them, we need to simply ask, what is a sacrament? What is a sacrament? And I won't be unfair. I'll warn our youth in advance, at least the high schoolers, when we come to Sunday school in a few weeks here, we're coming right into this. And so remember with me, what is a sacrament? And then secondly, we're going to look at what are the sacraments. In other words, we'll identify which ones do we acknowledge as biblical. That's not wasted information. You may say, I know exactly how many sacraments there are. Within Maricopa County, nominally, there are 1.2 million Roman Catholic people who do not acknowledge the same number of sacraments as we do. And these are people that we seek to minister to and love. And then likewise, we minister to those who don't acknowledge any sacraments at all. And then third, we'll look at the purpose for which the sacraments are given, or how do we use them rightly. Let's start right into what are sacraments. What are sacraments? Very basically, know this. If you search the Bible, you're not going to find that word. It is an English term 
that we use to describe a biblical concept, like the word trinity. You won't find trinity in the Bible. That comes from an old Latin word. And the word sacrament comes from an old Latin word as well, sacramentum, which in Latin meant an oath or a pledge. And that's because we view these special things that we call sacraments as God's oath or promise to us. But in turn, those who receive them come under specific obligations. So it goes both ways. There is an oath element, there's a pledge element in these signs and seals. And when I find that word signs and seal, I find that given to us in the catechism. In fact, I should have asked you to open there. Uh, In the Thin Forms and Prayers book, question and answer 66 of the Heidelberg Catechism, I'll read it to you right now, but at your leisure you may make your way there because I'll quote from it a few times. Question and answer 66 in the Heidelberg Catechism gives a very, very succinct definition of a sacrament. It is a visible, holy sign and seal. A visible, holy sign and seal. And I do wonder, if you were just asked by somebody, what is a sacrament, if you'd be able to give an answer. But from now on, if nothing else, that's, that's the answer. But in order that you might really appreciate it, we're going to look at each of those clauses, each of those phrases. First, what do we mean when we say that a sacrament is holy? When we say it's holy, we are saying that it originates in the will and revelation of God. It wasn't invented by some person like a magic trick, some talisman that we came up with. But God revealed it, and we see that in our text in verse 11, where it says, Abraham received circumcision. Now, God did not perform the circumcision. When he says that he received it, that is, God instructed him to do it. This is very important to understand. What makes a sacrament a sacrament is that it comes directly from the Lord with his authority. You see the same thing reflected in Matthew chapter 18 and Matthew chapter 28. In those passages, Jesus institutes what we call the Lord's Supper. And Jesus institutes baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he commands that these things will be done from then on. Later on in 1 Corinthians, when Paul is talking about the sacraments, he underscores in chapter 11 that he did not come up with these things, but he received them and he was passing them on exactly as he had received them. That's important to bear in mind about what a sacrament is. It's holy because it comes from God and it takes something common and it gives it a sacred status. Being sprinkled with water just looks like being washed. I remember, and a lot of you have heard, I was there one morning when I was sitting in the pew and a little child next to me asked, why is the pastor washing that baby? To someone who doesn't understand the significance, it looks like a common thing. But when the word of God is joined to it, then it becomes a sacrament. Likewise, we call them signs, visible signs. And to say that they are a sign means that they point beyond themselves to some other reality. If you think that the sacrament of, say, baptism itself regenerates, it's no longer a sign, it's the thing. It's a sign. It points beyond itself. Not so long ago, I was with a friend from church here. We were driving up near Happy Jack, and we saw over and over again alongside of the road cardboard placards that said, wood-fired pizza. Wood-fired pizza. And we started to get the point. We must be coming up on a place where you can get wood-fired pizza. But imagine if we didn't know a thing about signs. We're from another planet, and we get out of the car, and we decide to eat the wood-fired pizzas 
posted on these wooden stakes. It would taste like cardboard. That they are signs. They point to a reality. They weren't designed to give you the thing in itself apart from faith. Faith is the mouth by which we feed upon all of God's promises. The sacraments point us rightly to where the real nourishment is. This is made very clear, for instance, in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. It's very brief, so I don't ask you to turn there. But you may want to take note. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6 shows that under the Old Covenant, too, these sacraments always pointed to a spiritual reality. It says this in verse 6. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. It is God who affects what is pictured then in that time in circumcision, which was the cutting away of that which made a person impure in order that the person could remain among the people of God. There's a sign pointing to that. This sermon will not go into great detail on all the significance of that sacrament in particular, but it's the Lord who brings about the things pictured in baptism or the Lord's Supper, etc. And we receive that through faith. And then we call it a seal. A seal. And this is found in our text in Romans 4, verse 11. It's explicitly called a seal of the righteousness which he had by faith. What is that getting at? How is baptism a seal? How is the Lord's Supper a seal? How is circumcision a seal? To say it's a seal means that it is an authoritative physical emblem. And I'll make that very, very clear here. Imagine that you receive a letter in the mail and it states that it's from the state of Arizona and it's calling you to do something or another. And then it has a gold seal in it that looks expensive and it has the insignia of our state in it. That gold seal of itself does not make the things on the page true. But it's there to help assure you that it is. It's a supplement to the words designed to underscore and impress the truth and the weight. And even so, the sacraments are tangible tokens. They are impressions upon us. It's as if God, with the word, puts his hand upon you to say, these are my promises and I am extending them to you. And so these are the different basic ideas of a sacrament, a holy, visible sign and seal. That leads a question, though, which is, what are the sacraments we acknowledge? What are the sacraments that we are to make use of? As I mentioned to you, this is not a a wasted question. 1.2 million nominal Roman Catholics in this city who acknowledge seven sacraments, in addition to baptism and the Lord's Supper, five additional ones. Late in the Western history of the church, then the Eastern Orthodox also began to acknowledge the additional five as well. I would draw attention to the fact that use of those other five has not been from the beginning. We're talking about developments that begin to creep around 800 AD. That is a long time after Christ. Let that sink in. Sometimes we compress all of past history together and treat it like it was all at the same time. It did not feel like the same century to people living in the 900s 
as it did to people living in the first century, the people in the ninth century felt that they were very modern. They felt 800 years have passed, 900 years have passed. The history of the use of additional so-called sacraments is not until fairly late and doesn't become formal dogma in the West and was still being challenged until the 1200s. And then between the 1200s and the 1400s, there's significant debate, and then you hit Martin Luther. So this was never just a settled question. What are the sacraments that we identify? Broadly speaking, follow me here, broadly speaking, under the Old Covenant, there were many things which we would describe as sacramental in nature, sacramental-ish, that we do not acknowledge as sacraments in the formal sense. And this will come back to how we look at New Testament things as well. Let me give you two examples. The tree of life that Adam had a right to until he fell. Or the rainbow following the flood. John Calvin, in his book, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, he comments on this. He says, These were to Adam and Noah as sacraments, for they had a mark engraven on them by the word of God, and so became proofs and seals of his covenants. That is, once God pronounced an additional meaning upon these things, they became signs and seals of the covenants that they were related to. Adam, before the fall, in terms of a covenant of works, basically meriting salvation according to the terms God gave. In the case of Noah and all of humanity descended from him, that God would not flood the world again. But this is an important distinction. Historically, Reformed theology has acknowledged as a condition of a sacrament, of a true sacrament, that it is instituted by God in the church and concerns salvation in Christ. I'm going to say that again. A sacrament is instituted by God in the church, so it's church people who use it, and it concerns salvation in Christ. Neither of those things apply to the tree of life or to the rainbow. Those were for Adam and all his descendants and for the whole world under Noah. And neither of them was about redemption by grace alone in Christ. Under the old covenant, you have multiple different sacraments. We've already seen circumcision, but with that you could add, can you think what other sacraments under the old covenant that are given to the church and concern salvation in Christ? You have the entire priestly system of sacrifices. You can't just take one out like Passover. The whole thing was picturing to the covenant people God's promise to provide mediation, a substitute, someone besides themselves. And the blood of sheep and goats could never take away sin. They were always looking forward to the promised one that God promised from the time of Adam and Eve. They were looking forward to Jesus. And so you have all of these things pointing forward to Jesus. Perhaps they had so many because in that time they had less scripture or because the Holy Spirit had not yet been poured out. Following Christ's coming, though, there are only two sacraments that are invoked and impressed under the New Testament. Our catechism gives the answer to what they are in question answer 68. How many sacraments did Christ institute in the New Testament? Two. Holy baptism and the Lord's Supper. Again, I mentioned to you that for something to be a sacrament, it's given to the church 
and it is designed to emphasize, to affirm the nature of the covenant, that it is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Over time, in the Western Church, and I won't even say the Roman Catholic Church, it didn't become the Roman Catholic Church officially, really, until the Reformation. There was just Western Christianity. In the Western Church, there was a kind of creep, a creeping, where things that were important came to be viewed as though they conferred grace in a different way. As if they in themselves gave grace almost like a substance to get it into you. And so certain ordinances like simply being married, an institution given to the whole world, not just to the church, came to be viewed as, well, that's a sacrament because it's a means of grace. Just because something is a means of grace doesn't mean it's a sacrament. Preaching is not a sacrament, but it's a means of grace. Prayer is not a sacrament. It's not a holy sign and seal given by God, instituted by him. Just because something is a blessing and a benefit doesn't make it a sacrament of the covenant. But marriage can be viewed that way, but then priests, for horrible reasons, were prevented from being married. And they wanted the blessing too, and so the ordinance of rites, of of being a priest, was made a sacrament. So if you didn't get one, you can get the other. You're still going to get the right amount of grace coming through. I don't think many people were aware of the creep as it happened. Again, it happened over centuries. We are not above this, by the way. For many years before I went back to seminary, I worked as a commercial photographer and a wedding photographer. And I began to see something. I began to notice more and more frequently that couples who were getting married wanted to take communion at their wedding. Just them, no one else. Even though the Bible says in 1 Corinthians so clearly, when you partake, wait until the whole church is there. And they saw it as this personal thing where maybe they were getting some extra grace it's always a sacrament intended to unite the corporate body with Christ now we do bring communion sometimes to those who are shut in it's always in the context of having recently done so with the church here always with a kind of embassy of representatives from the congregation it's to include them not to separate out the church from it so even in modern times evangelical people are not above this, and I'm putting us in the category of evangelical because that question has at times been asked of me, whether or not Reformed people can do that as well. What makes a sacrament a sacrament is that Christ instituted it in the church, and it concerns a picture of the gospel. I would only add one more thing about that. Where did Rome get the authority for it? To this day, they assert it on the basis of tradition. If you ask them what's the Bible verse, they'll say that's the wrong way of thinking. They'll say it's on the basis of tradition. Tradition has also held in Rome for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years that if an infant is not baptized, an infant of a believer is not baptized, and then dies, what happens to it? The child goes to limbo. The child can't go to heaven because they have original sin, and Rome teaches that the water of baptism itself takes away original sin. So you go to limbo. In 2007, we have to give credit where it's due. We have no axe to grind against the people of Rome. It's against error. In 2007, the Vatican revoked that. I don't know if you're aware of that. They no longer teach that formally. Their official catechism no longer teaches that. 
On what ground, though? If tradition cannot err, but it did err. And the rest of them are not to be found in the scripture. They simply don't exist as rites from scripture. And so these are the only two that we acknowledge. Finally, I want to reflect with you a little bit on the purpose. I've said how not to use them in some ways, but how do we use them? Go back to the story of Abraham. This is our third and final heading. The story of Abraham in Romans chapter 4. Look at me at verse 11. It says, Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had already received by faith while he was still uncircumcised. A seal of the righteousness he already had by faith. Which means that it was not to justify him, but to confirm him in the things that he believed. It raises, of course, the question, we'll come back to this in a few weeks, why then was it given to infants who you can't know whether they had faith or not yet? Because it wasn't a sign of a person's individual faith, it was a sign of the covenant, of the promise that is to be received by faith, to direct and to confirm and to distinguish. And so he was given it for that reason. This has nothing to do with deficiency in the word itself. Somebody might argue, well, Do we even need sacraments if we just have the word? It's not the deficiency of the word. It's a deficiency in ourselves. We are so weak. Listen very, very carefully to something that one of our forefathers in the faith, Guido de Bray, literally gave his tongue and then his life to put to paper. He was martyred for the things that he wrote in the Belgian Confession, which we subscribe to. And this is what he says in Article 33, and it was over this particular article, one of the key articles over which they killed him. We believe that our good God, mindful of our crudeness and weakness, mindful of our crudeness and weakness, has ordained sacraments for us to seal his promises in us, to pledge his goodwill and grace toward us, and also to nourish and sustain our faith. He has added these to the word of the gospel to represent better to our external senses both what he enables us to understand by his word and what he does inwardly in our hearts, confirming in us the salvation he imparts to us. It's God's working through the word in his time and his way that we receive the benefits. You may not feel so poor at times, but those who use the sacraments in faith do feel their poverty. And I hope that is your experience, that at times when you receive the supper, or in time will receive it, times when you observe baptisms and you remember that you were baptized, that you feel, I am so grateful that the Lord has not only spoken, but has put out his hand, as it were. He ordained that this should be done. He ordained that we should have a tangible token. Imagine a very, very poor young man living in just a ramshackle apartment, And he knows that he's about to be evicted any moment. He can't afford to live there. And then someone comes by his place and hands him an envelope and walks away. And inside he finds a statement, a document telling him that some generous person has determined to make him the sole heir of a beautiful mansion. And the only terms are that he would move in. Upon beginning to dwell there, it's his. And again, he might doubt that, but there's the emblem and the famous crest of that rich person there. 
Having the gold foil does not itself make it true, but it confirms, it assures. And imagine that man taking it out of his pocket and looking at it again and again. The Lord works through baptism in such a way, not that you trust in the gold foil, in the water of baptism itself, that you trust what they represent. That the moment when by faith you took up residence in the promises given in Christ, you became heir of everything. The Lord calls you through the sacraments to that blessing. Verse 11 and 12, look with me there, where this is laid out very plainly. The purpose was to make Abraham the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, that is in the flesh, but who also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So the primary purpose, as we've seen, is to direct our faith, to confirm our faith, to distinguish the visible church from the world. What then are we to do with this? I want to encourage you in a few ways here. Teach others to understand this rightly. Talk about the benefits of your having these sacraments. When I have conversations, as many of you at different times will have, when you have conversations, say, with a, uh, a Baptist person who doesn't understand why we would baptize children of the covenant as well, it's to ask them what they think baptism does for someone. Have that conversation. Instead of just proof texting, where does it say in the Bible? We'll get there. But ask them what they think it does and how it benefits people. And ask how did circumcision benefit the children under the old covenant when they received a sign of the righteousness through faith. And then comfort one another. Draw attention back to that. When somebody's struggling in the faith, remind them, you were baptized. God has told you, not only audibly, but he put a sign in front of everybody. He will save sinners. He'll wash them clean. Don't treat them like they're just in the rearview mirror. Put them out in front of you. Drive towards the sacraments and use them in that way. Children, I appeal to you not to be superstitious about the sacraments. I thank God, we've, now that I've said it, who knows what will happen, but we've never had an instance that I'm aware of where partaking of the Lord's Supper, we suddenly dropped a tray or spilt something. I hope that we will not be some superstitious church that makes an obscene gesture before the Lord. <gasps> like, does he have favor towards us? Is this an omen? No, a person dropped something. We drop things. We have fallible people carrying items around a building with hundreds of people. It's a sign. The reality is what matters. Now, that is not to denigrate it. It's holy. That means you show reverence. You respect it. Children, if communion is passed along you, you do not play with it. God will not hold guiltless those who make light of the sacraments knowingly. They are not snacks. They are not toys. They're gifts. And in time are desires that everybody should partake in the right way. May God help us to do these things as we will have several weeks to consider more in detail the particular imagery of the sacraments. I trust it will be a blessing to you. And this time let's ask God to work through this. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for giving us through the clarity of your scripture, a clear idea of what you desire us to do with these precious gifts, we pray that you would cause us 
to receive them with gratitude, so often as we do and so often as we observe them. We pray for those who are looking forward to becoming professing communicant members that you would cause them to approach with great zeal, expectation, and joy the way that you will extend your promises more tangibly to them. For those who are straying at this time from the faith, we pray that you would cause them to be mindful of the way that you set them apart from the world visibly and the obligations that are upon them. In Jesus' name we ask all these things. Amen.